It's always the same story. The students diagnosed with ADHD are just lazy and don't want to do their homework or pay attention in class. What we fail to acknowledge is that from the learning environment to the opportunities provided, not enough support and accommodations are made for students with neurodiverse brains. Welcome to Normalize the Conversation. I'm your host, Francesca Reigeter, and today I'm joined by Dr. Matt Zakreski, a clinician supporting young people in understanding, developing, and celebrating their unique brains. He's most known for working alongside gifted individuals as an advocate for using the accessible understanding of neurodivergent brains to implement high-level support. Join us as Dr. Matt gives us a peek into the neurodivergent mind, breaks down misconceptions, and shares what we can do as a society to give everyone a seat at the table. Dr. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited to talk with you. I met you about a month ago now at a conference, (laughs) and... I I mean, I walked up to you and I remember we found out we were talking at the same time and I was already immediately in competition with you. So I'm excited to now be sitting here and learning from you instead of competing against you. Are we on the, we're on the same it. side now? We're on the same team? Just want Possibly, to sure. possibly. <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny that yet, but it's possible. Yeah. We may be friends today. All right, let's see. <laughs> but before we decide that, I really want to check in with you. How are you really? How am I really? I it's it's a great question. Um, you know, and it's funny because this was pre- you know like top on my mind. So we were just talking about like how much you know I travel for work, right? I go to a lot of these conferences, and you know when you are at a conference, you know I eat a lot more than I normally do. I don't drink enough water. I have a lot more caffeine until it's time to start drinking alcohol, right? Like, so it does a number on my body, right? Like I think, you know, it takes time to like recalibrate. And I've just been thinking like, man, like I just feel like physically off, right? So that's why I have my, you know, my big fruit smoothie right here, you know, and it's (laughs) uh, just putting good stuff back in. But it's like those little things where you, you know, it's not, we don't just live up here in our heads. We live in our bodies and we've got to take care of our vessels, right? So, you know, it's it's a, a thing I have to remind myself of often. Oh, and it's so important. I don't think there's enough really conversation on how much traveling impacts your body, not just from the actual, like maybe time zone differences, which does a lot, not for maybe just sitting on a plane for hours, right? And hours and hours and hours. Yeah. But also just like you said, you you don't have your own kitchen, so you are eating out more. And it's also different foods a lot of times. I know for me, I like to try something new that I wouldn't have near me. Yeah. But I tend not to order the healthiest thing on the menu. And then I'm like, I feel a little more sluggish, which is actually very rare for me. I'm that person who will order a salad anywhere. And then all of a sudden you'll see me order like chicken tenders. I don't know. I feel like that would be my, I'm like a child. Chicken tenders and french fries when I travel. So maybe I don't do a good job. But it's just, it's so different. Or I'm like constantly drinking so much coffee. I'm drinking coffee at 6 a.m. before I get on the flight. Then I need to be drinking coffee on the flight. So when I get there, I can like function enough to get into an Uber. Then continuously drinking coffee. And then it switches to alcohol at night to socialize and meet new people. And it's not doing anything to take care of myself completely out of my routine. And it's a lot when you do it all the time. So, I mean, I mean, and it's the sort of thing like this may seem like 
like the most privileged conversation ever like oh woe is us we have to travel for our jobs and we have to drink alcohol and make friends and network but it's a great reminder that even the things we love doing have costs yeah. right you know and you know i mean you know in my day to day job as a psychologist a lot of my kids are getting ready to go to camp right now like july 1st is sort of like the go to camp start and we're starting to already prepare for the post-camp crash, right? Because for a lot of the kids I work with, camp is the thing they look forward to the most all year. It's the place where they feel most seen, most supported, most taken care of. And you get three, four, six weeks of that, but then you got to go back to the rest of your life. Yeah. And if you're not careful, the bottom is just going to drop right out from you. You know, and that's why I end up having like a lot of pretty intense mental health sessions with kids around the idea of camp. And I'm never gonna tell kids not go, not to go to camp, right? Camp is awesome. Camp not only changed my life, I think it really saved my life, but it is this idea of like, the more we know, the more we have these conversations and are intentional about it, even if we're just being that much more proactive, it goes a long way. It really does. And it's so true when you spend so much time looking forward to something and you get to experience it and then it's over and it it goes by so fast too, right? Because it's something you are so excited for. You love so much. It's all you wanted. So much fun. Snap your fingers. It's done. It's gone. And that's a lot to deal with for it to suddenly not be the thing you've been looking forward to for so long to no longer be there in front of you. Right. It's really difficult. And a lot of times we don't talk about that piece. We don't do that preventative measure to offer support. How am I going to cope with the fact that this is now over and this is something that may not happen again for another year? And I need yeah. to still be able to get through that year. Right. You know, I mean, and it's it's so funny because mental health stuff in general can feel very reactive. You know, mm-hmm. it can feel very like, you know. I can't treat you for a psychotic break until you have a psychotic break, right? But increasingly, the more we know about the brain and epigenesis and, you know, and environmental supports, we know that we can, we may not be able to stop things from happening, but we can prepare the system, prepare the body. And if we can limit that, then, I mean, then who wouldn't want that, right? If we can turn that level 10 meltdown into a level four meltdown. I mean, that's like, it's easy to think, well, he still melted down, but if that meltdown was smaller, you know, again, psychology, we always talk about things in terms of the big three, frequency, intensity, and duration, right? So I wanted to be less frequent, less intense and shorter, right? So, I mean, maybe if we know that you always fall apart after camp, we put some stuff in place to make that process less and less is good. Yes, absolutely. And when it comes to physical health, this is something that's so ingrained in the whole system, right? Like we take vitamins. We're taught to take vitamins to boost our immune system. Is it going to prevent us from ever getting a cold? No, but is it going to lessen the impact of the cold and how much it affects us and how maybe keep it from progressing even further? You know, with our physical health, we really do so much to try to prevent things from getting worse or just something we can do to support someone now. And then when it comes to mental health, we really do wait. Like you said, it's so reactive and it's so frustrating how reactive it is when you watch so many people's lives 
how different things could have been if we just started earlier. If we just started giving kids coping skills or teaching them boundaries, how to say, no, I'm not comfortable right now. This isn't for me. How to say that, you know, I need to make time for me. I need rest. How to recognize they need rest. I mean, things that might seem so small, if we start giving people the tools they need so much earlier, it can change so much. And yet, for some reason, we are stuck in this system that likes to be reactive. And and that's why I think the cha- the conversations we're having now is bringing these bringing this information out of the darkness because when you know, then knowledge is power, right? And actually, my new thing I've been saying this a lot recently is that knowledge isn't just power; knowledge is empowerment, right? Yeah. So, like, if this weekend, right, it's Fourth of July weekend. Right, like if you're going somewhere and you know there's going to be a lot of traffic, right? You're heading downtown. There's a big fireworks downtown. That doesn't. You may use that information to maybe maybe you choose not to go, or maybe you choose to take a cab, or maybe you choose to go the day early, stay with friends. Right, the knowledge empowers you to make different choices. It doesn't change the fact that traffic exists, right? Because traffic always exists, and it's the sort of thing like the more we know the better choices we can make. But whereas like people will talk about traffic until they're blue in the face, right? The things that you and I deal with, the, you know, the mental health stuff are conversations that have been locked away for a really long time. So that gives us this ability to say, hey, like we are empowering you with this knowledge. Like, you know, mental illness runs in your family. So here are things you can do to make yourself better. You know, these are stressors and triggers for you here are things you can do to accommodate that, right? It's about empowering the person, you know, because I always say my job as a therapist is to make myself irrelevant. I want you to not need me anymore, right? That's that's the thing, right? Like, I don't want you, like, I would say, if I'm still seeing you in 20 years, I'll have done something wrong, right? There's no reason I should do that. You may still need mental health support in 20 years, but we want to have different conversations about it. Yes. And I think that's something people don't necessarily understand about therapy. The goal is not for you to be in therapy forever. Their goal is to give you the tools and resources so that you have the support you need so that you don't need us. Yes. That you don't, that you can get through life stressors, that it doesn't hurt you as much as it is hurting you right now. So you have the tools that you need so that you can continue to grow and enjoy pieces of life that maybe you don't get to right now. And for some reason, there's this idea. I was fighting with one of my cousins about this the other day, actually. Because she's like, I get why you go to therapy, but like, I wouldn't go. And I was like, okay. I was like, as someone who's currently working to be a therapist, like studying and spending a lot of money going into a lot of debt to be a therapist, tell me why you don't believe in this like career path. Tell me why you don't believe in therapy. Walk me through this right now, please, right? Right, she's like, well, you just go and then you tell them your problems and then you have problems every week and you keep going and you're in therapy forever, just telling them your problems. I'm like, okay, I I see where you're coming from. You're seeing it as you go to therapy and they're sitting there listening to you talk about your problems and you have new problems arising all the time and then that's it. But therapy is not just a therapist listening to you. That is a huge part. You are being heard like probably for the first time for so many people. Absolutely. But you're also having someone there who's willing to help 
guide you to find the tools that work for you, who's ready to support you and help you find what's right for you. So that way you don't need to come sit with us to tell us the problems. You have the tools you need to get through them. And if you want to be in therapy forever because you love going to therapy, that's great. I hope to be that person. I love therapy. I love having a place where I feel heard. And there's nothing wrong with that when it's something that's accessible for me. And I hope that it's accessible for everyone in that that space. But to think that therapy is just uh, you go and you talk about your problems and then that's it and that's the extent of it is so harmful. It really is. And, you know, and it's such a... I mean, it's, it's like this old way of thinking about it, right? Like, and you know, your cousin, your cousin is coming at this place, not from a place of malice, right? Yeah. But from a place of, in, of lack of information. Exactly. Um, have you, have you ever heard of Hanlon's law? No, I have not. So Hanlon's law is like Murphy's law, right? Like, you know, what could go wrong will go wrong. Hanlon's law is never assume malice when incompetence would better explain it. Right. And and speaking directly to your cousin, I'm not trying to call you incompetent right now. What I'm saying is that you don't know. You don't know the things that we know. And and because of generational trauma around not talking about mental health. Right. Like I see a therapist. It makes me a better therapist. It makes me a better partner. It makes me a better husband. It makes me a better father. It makes me a better friend. I could keep going. Right. And it's so funny, even within my field, people are like, oh, you see a therapist? Like, this is literally what we do. <laughs> what do you mean? What do I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, so you know, there's a long way to go, but it will and can get better. Absolutely. I remember my first day of grad school, the teacher, the first thing she said was, raise your hand if you have a therapist. And I think I was like one of two people who raised their hands. And she was like, you all need a therapist. Like starting today, you all need a therapist because what you're going to learn about, what you're going to hear about is heavy. It's a lot. And you have your own life stressors and your own experiences and traumas that are heavy. You deserve to feel supported. You want to offer support to other people. That's amazing. You deserve that same support. Go find a therapist. Like that's what's going to get you through. And I thought that was so fascinating to me because- in TV, it's there's always that joke that the therapist has a therapist and like yeah. the therapist is crazy because they have a therapist. And it really has made it seem like something's wrong with therapists for having yeah. a therapist. That's a bad thing. And your therapist must be crazy. It's like this idea that has been put into our heads through the media. So I loved having that like in the beginning, first day of class, like you deserve the same support you're willing to give to other people. Like, wow, breaking down that stigma and misconception so fast. Immediately, right? Like, and by the way, here's where we're at with this. Go. You know, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's so, it's those things that seem so small. Again, that makes such a big difference. I love this conversation, but I really do want to talk more about the work that you're doing because you work a lot with sensory processing, neurodivergent brains, and I have not had conversations, very many conversations about this before. So I'm excited to learn from you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing? Sure. So it starts with a piece of vulnerability, right? So in second grade, I was identified as gifted. Um, and, and then in high school, I was identified as ADHD, which frankly explained a lot. Um, and And 
as a person with a different brain, right? Which is what I know now, which is not what I knew then. I turned 40 this year. So I'm sort of like straddling this, this zeitgeist on this. Like, I'm like, I can tell you how it was. My generation, same way with the internet. It's like, ah, I remember when there wasn't an, an internet and now I do. Whereas like you youngins are like, what do you mean dial up? That doesn't even make sense. I'm like, the youths. Anywho, I digress. So, and I remember thinking like, if I'm so smart, how come I can't dot, dot, dot with so many things in my life? And now doing this professionally, learning about the brain, learning about these differences, you realize it's not about personality. It's not about drive. It's not about you know, being like, you know, like a soft millennial or whatever the languages they use these days. It's about your having a different brain gives you strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others. So if we, if we internalize this about our brain, rather than internalizing this as like, this is who I am as a person, I'm flawed and broken, then it gives us a thing to work on. So I ground all my therapy stuff in, in conversations about the brain. I say like, this is your brain telling you you can, or this is your brain telling you you can't. And it allows us a way to change the conversations. I love that because it's so important. Um, my younger brother was diagnosed with ADHD when he was very young. I mean, he had to be like seven or eight years old. And it was brought up as like something's wrong with him. Yep. And He's never going to succeed in school. He's never going to be able to accomplish anything. Like, you know, it was that kind of narrative. Oh, yes. And it was a lot of, let's try this medication, try this medication, try this medication. And when they had side effects, it was, again, something's wrong with him. Yeah. And it was never a real conversation. So to this day, I still can confidently say that he doesn't completely understand it. And like him and I talk about it all the time. And we try to like, figure out what does this mean for him? What pieces of his ADHD are his strengths? What's helping him and what's working against him so he can learn different tools that he can use? Like time management is maybe not his like forte. I'm great at time management. Him on the other hand, no. But no, you know so what's helpful? Having a calendar. Yeah. Instead of just saying, this is something's wrong with you. That's it. You're done. Nothing's going to help you. Let's use your phone that has the clock app that you can set timers. Wow. Let's get an agenda, right? There's so many different tools that seem so simple, right. yet none of that was ever presented to him. It was straight to something's wrong with you. That's it. Yep. And you're not going to get anywhere. And I just like, it makes me so angry that that was the conversations being given to my younger brother at like eight years old instead of ever having a real conversation, which is why I admire what you're doing so much. Well, and think about how powerful it is to, to say like, we are changing how we do this. We are like, I mean, so as a gifted kid with ADHD, which is not uncommon, right? You know, I cannot tell you how many times as a kid, I heard, if you're so smart, how come you can't dot, dot, dot? right? Pay attention, use your time management, find a piece of paper in your backpack. I would open my backpack and it looks like Harry Potter when he gets all the letters to Hogwarts, right? It was, you know, I'm like, I don't know. My brain just doesn't work that way. And, and if you don't know better, you assume that's your fault. Yes. You know, and I, you know, one of the things we know about the human brain is that in the absence of information, it creates its own narrative. 
And those narratives tend to be catastrophic and negative, right? So, you know, if we're supposed to do this podcast at, well, it's 1230 my time, right? And I was 15 minutes late, your brain might go, he's blowing me off. He doesn't care about this. Maybe he got hit by a truck. Whereas like, maybe I'm just like stuck on the phone with another client and I don't have the way to reach out to you in that moment, right? So it's like more information, once again, empowers us to make better choices. But if with all of the misconceptions and misinformation out there about mental health, especially neurodivergences like ADHD, yeah. right? You know, it you're pushing back on a lot of preconceived notions that are that make the adults who are supposed to help your sibling do their jobs worse, not better. Who would want that? Who would make that choice, right? That's doesn't sound like fun. Exactly. And that's the thing, this lack of conversation, this love of misconceptions and stigma when it comes to mental health has created this world where so many people are afraid to even look up more information, right? They're afraid that, oh my goodness, the they're listening to us on our phones. They can see what we're searching. People are going to know that something's wrong with me if I'm searching about this, or that's going to control my whole algorithm. That's all I'm going to see on social media now. So I can't look things up. Can't ask questions. What if I ask the wrong question and people judge me for asking a question? Why don't I know this? And it does turn into this whole spiral of people being afraid for information that you can't do anything without information. You cannot make a decision if you have no information. If someone looked at you and they're like option A or B, with yeah. no other information, what are you going to do? Like you need choose. You have to choose. You have to choose right now. It's like, I don't know. Exactly. And if yeah. you don't know, it's okay to ask questions. What is option A? What right. is option B? What are the differences? What's the best option for me? How can I figure this out? What questions can I ask? These are all very valid things that have with mental health for some reason been swept under the rug. I mean, is anyone ever embarrassed when they go to the doctor and they're like, oh, you have a cold or you have the flu? And you say like, okay, what can I do? Like, has anyone ever been embarrassed to ask, what can I do so that I'm no longer sick with the flu? I don't <laughs> think so. Like, you're like, tell me anything I can do and I will try it right now. Literally, like just just what it is. Just tell me what it is. I and I'll and I'll try and do it, you know. And there, and it's so funny because we have this understanding as a society that colds are a thing that happen to us, right? You get sick, right? And I think that there's still this sort of overarching idea that mental illness is a thing that happens to us, right? Like, it's like, well, what did you do to get depressed? It's like, well, so I'll tell you, the serotonin in my brain is not doing its job, right? For lots of reasons. And, you know, I mean, so for that same reason where, where we might not be embarrassed to ask, why do I have a cold? You might be embarrassed to ask, why am I depressed? Because our brains like reasons. Our brains like reasons because reasons attach some structure to a world that feels chaotic. Absolutely. And sometimes we don't even know the reasons. And I think that's the hardest part because research is still figuring a lot of things out. There's so many different reasons. And there's so many different reasons why things work and things don't work for one person and works for someone else. And that's all okay. But when it comes to physical health, it does often tend to be like, this is the standard medication that works for 99% of people. When it comes to mental health, it doesn't work that way. 
it is a lot different. It is very unique to each person, their environment, what they're experiencing. Absolutely. So it can feel very different and it can feel very isolating. I know with my younger brother, one thing that used to happen to him a lot was in class, his teacher would make a comment like, oh, did you take your medication today? You need to go take your medication. Something is wrong with you. So again, it's like attaching something's wrong with you. You need this medication. Okay, this medication now mummified him or this medication had him banging his head against the wall. And it's like, well, it works for other kids. Why doesn't it work for you? Something's wrong with you. So not only was it like something that internally he was feeling, but it was made external to his entire class Yeah, because they were trying to figure out what worked for him. And it became very public because he needed the medication during the school day. Yeah. And, and you, you know, and it's so funny because one of the things that, and this is actually true across the research shows this is true across basically any difference, right? Whether this is a person in a wheelchair or a person who needs a seeing eye dog or a person who needs ADHD medication or a person who needs mental health days, right? Interventions that that amplify our differences are harder to use, right? It's even though we are all different, we all have our different brains. You don't. It's hard, especially in school age years, to be that person who is visibly identified as an other, right? I'm the only kid in my school who walks with 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 crutches. I'm the only kid in my school who has an eye patch. I'm the only kid in my school who loudly has to be reminded to take his freaking ADHD medicine, right? And what that does is it stigmatizes people and it makes it harder for them to res- to access those resources, which means they're less likely to use them, which means they're less likely to get better. And then since they're not getting better, we turn around and assume it's their problem. Like, oh, well, if only Johnny would take his meds, then he'd get better because he's not, He's he just doesn't want to get better. Like that's that's never the choice. But it's the it's the easy narrative to have in our brains. It is. It is the easy narrative to have in our brains. And it's so frustrating because, again, we're not seeing people make adaptations so people can, like, fit in. There are things I'm sure teachers could have done for my brother mm-hmm. instead of kicking him out of class all the time. Like, spoiler alert, not every eight-year-old wants to sit in two hours of math class. No, I know. Crazy, right? Like I thought everyone wanted to do that, right? (laughs) So when he's talking to other people and he's bouncing around in his chair, what if there was a way to have a more active discussion during class for kids who need to be more active and like to talk and like to move around? Maybe there's a way to engage the students more, or maybe there's a way to make more games involved in learning. So it's not just sitting there being lectured at. Because yeah. that is a great tool for people who love to sit and learn by being lectured at. A lot of people do. That is right. great for them. And I love that we have that option. What about yeah. for people who don't? Why right. can't we still include them in learning instead of being like, well, they're just not smart or they yeah. just don't care or they just don't want to, or it's because they have a neurodivergent brain. So they just can't, yeah. right? It's all these reasons instead of let's make changes so that everyone fits at the table instead of trying to make everyone fit into a very limited very rare thing that someone wants to sit for two hours straight in a math class just being lectured that's not 
what everyone wants and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with if you want to do that too I have a feeling someone's going to be like but this is what I love no it's great either way but we all deserve a seat at the table right I mean the one of the things that I I say all the time is that that different doesn't mean worse right we you know it's the difference between equality and equity right? Equalities, everybody gets it, right? And equality and equities, you get what you need. And, you know, I mean, so the world is built for neurotypical people, right? And neurotypical people with regular brains. And, and, and frankly, as it should be, there's a lot more of them than there are of us, right? I mean, 68% of people are within one standard deviation on the IQ mean, right? So 68% of people have an IQ between 85 and 115. Of course, you would build schools and systems for those people because most people think and learn that way, right? The American education system is built on redundancy because most people need a lot of practice repetition to learn. But those of us whose brains don't work that way also deserve to learn and be empowered in ways that are organic to us, right? And, you know, and and it's funny, I often use this example. It's like, if you had a kid who was a brilliant musician, right? Kid walks into your office, brilliant musician. You're like, I'm going to get this kid in the orchestra. I'm going to get this kid at the best teachers, the best mentors, you know, like they should be in the Philharmonic and you're going to make those things happen. That same kid who's like, I want to do college level chemistry right now. They're like, whoa, whoa, slow your roll, Johnny. Right. And I was like, why do we think that way? It's, it's weird, Right. And think about growing up, like you, as you get up, you get more control of your life. And it's not an accident that more people, when they have more control, feel better. They feel more empowered. They feel more engaged, right? Nobody's making you become a therapist, right? I mean, unless you have like some lifelong desire to enter into $100,000 of debt. Um, and if so, maybe we should have a different conversation about that. Um, but you are making a choice. You could be a bartender. You could drive Uber. You could be a CEO. Like you could have done a million things. You made a choice. And, and as you go along your therapy journey, your practice will look the way you want it to look. Just like my practice looks the way I want it to look. Yeah. Right? And that's the beauty of being a person. So if we rewind the tape a little bit, if there are educational models that exist for people who learn differently, whose brains work differently, then we should be putting those people in those models as soon as we possibly can. Yes, 100%. And that's the thing is we have this information though. We know that there's different styles of learning, different styles of learning work better for different people. We know that neurodivergent brains have a lot of different strengths. So there's a lot of tools that actually can help. And yet we often tend to be like, mm, no, you don't fit into the standard public school system. That's actually pretty broken to begin with. Oh, that's bad. Like, sorry for you. You're not getting anywhere, essentially, is the way we approach it. And that's terrible. We need to update the system for so many different reasons. But we also need to make sure that as we're doing that, we are making sure there's programs available for everyone, because some people may learn quicker or slower. Some people may have really good passions and interests in one specific subject. Everything should be available for everyone. No one should be denied the opportunity to learn 
or to explore who they are or to grow in a way that's right for them. And, you know, the, the thing I always come back to is that it's right for them, which means we need to give people time and space to figure out what that is. Yeah. Right. You know, I've decided that you're going to be a cocktail waitress. That's what you're going to do. You're like, I don't actually drink alcohol. I find bars overstimulating. Tough. That's what you're going to do. And it's like, just slow down. Right? Just slow down. You know, life is a buffet. We should sample all the things. Right? If you, you know, if people tell you like, well, we've always eaten chicken fingers and french fries. So by God, that's what we're going to continue to eat. It it robs us of so many things that we know we can't have. And then vitally things we don't know that we don't know that we have. Right. You know, I didn't know before I started doing a lot of speaking engagements, I had no idea how many conferences exist, how many mental health organizations, the more I learned, I'm like, Oh man, this is great. We should do more of this, you know? And it's like, it was a thing I didn't know. I didn't know. And I find that, those realities so inspiring because man, you never know what's coming down the pike. You never know what's behind the, your next Google search because there's always more stuff to learn and engage in. Yes. And you don't know what you don't know. So it's being willing to learn, being willing to be wrong, yeah. right? Because a lot of people can be listening to this conversation right now and they're like, great, I don't know what to do. I now want to be part of change. I want to be better. I want to develop programs. I want to make sure programs are there, but I don't know what to do. So that's where it stops for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Be willing to be wrong. Be willing to ask questions, to try, to get feedback and be willing to say, you know what? I did try. It came from a good place, but it wasn't as helpful as I thought it would be. Let me take their feedback and try again and collaborate with people who are actually impacted by these programs. Give people a voice, move forward, continue to try. It can't, it also can't stop at, okay, well, I heard a conversation. I want to, but I don't know what to do. So that's it. Be willing to try, be willing to continue the conversation, to listen to conversations, be part of conversations, not to overshadow conversations and take over, but to listen and to learn, to let people feel heard so that we can make change because like the reality of it is, like you said, the world is full of primarily neurotypical brains. Okay. That means a lot of the people making the conversations and at the table probably don't identify within the neurodivergent brain. They don't identify within the programs that they're creating. So it's okay. That's okay. How can we give more people a seat at the table? How can we learn? How can we still continue to try? We can't just ignore it because they're not at the table, create a seat at the table. Yep. I mean, the there's this incredible movement within the broader neurodiversity movement about the actually autistic. Um, and their whole thing is no conversations about us without us. I love you that. Know? And a couple of years ago, they asked me to actually come and speak at a thing they were doing at uh, Penn State when I lived in Philadelphia. And, you know, I'm like, I'm always happy to give a talk and we're talking. And I said, at one point, I was like, I just want to say like, I'm not autistic. I, I, I'm i gifted and I'm ADHD. And yes, the gifted brain and the autistic brain have a lot in common, but I, I don't identify as someone on the spectrum. And they're like, oh, well, then you're not the speaker for us. And I wasn't offended by that, right? Of course, like you want to hear from your people 
And then, and I think this is how we're going to like sort of marry these two storylines is there's always this concept um, of a more knowledgeable other, right? So an MKO and wherever, wherever you are, when you reach the level of how far you can go on your own, you need an MKO to get to the next step, the next level, right? You have professors in your therapy program that are that they are your MKOs. They're getting you from where you are now, which is pretty freaking remarkable, to where you want to be, which is going to be like earth shattering, right? Like that, their job is to get you from A to B, right? And you know, and if you if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh, the things Dr. Matt are saying makes sense about neurodivergence, and maybe that's me, then I'll be your MKO. I'll get you from where you are to where the next step is. And maybe I continue with you on that journey, or maybe I'm like, oh man, there's a great therapist by you who gets this. Go see Dr. Collins, and I'll, you know, I'll make your referral. But there's there's a humility that comes with that, and then there's that empowerment piece again. Like you have to know to go do the things, right? So to learn, you need someone who knows more than you do, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with not knowing everything. We don't know everything. I'd love to say that I know everything. I will walk around and tell people that honestly, (laughs) as you know, I'll walk around and be like, I'm the best. Is that a surprise? Um, Shocking, shocking information, right? Um, You know, and and you need, and like, honestly, it was interesting for me in our conversation, how you, how that sort of went from like protective bluster to okay, you know, I'm sort of joking about this, but I'm going to keep going it because it's kind of my shtick. And like, I, I dig it, right? But the fact of the matter is, is like the most of the world doesn't feel safe to not know everything, yeah. right? We have to armor up and be like, no, I've got it. I figured it out because the last two times I raised my hand and asked for help, I got slapped down. So I'm going to be like, I'm fine. They're like, and I'm like, dude, you're actively on fire. I could tell you where the, the fire extinguisher are. This is how I want to be. These are my life choices. It's like, you're actively on fire. Right. So it's it's about in so many ways acknowledging that many places are not safe for people to show vulnerability, whether that's vulnerability of mental illness or socioeconomic status or relationship or sexuality or gender or education or 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 or. So the more we amplify spaces where we can say out loud this is who i am this is my true authentic self like i mean that was the best thing to me about nami is just being there and like so many people saying like this is my journey this is what got me here this is why i'm in minneapolis on a thursday in may i think it was may right i mean i heard i learned more about people in those you know in that 36 hours than i do in many other situations because we created an environment where people could sort of spill their guts. Yes, absolutely. And it is amazing when you put someone in an environment that's safe, where they can be completely honest with who they are, what they've gone through, how different their life becomes in that moment where it's like the first time you don't have to hide a piece of who you are. And you can just stand as you are and say it and admit like, hey, I struggled or I am struggling. I am currently struggling. I am currently seeking therapy. I am currently looking for this. I have gone through this. This is how I identify to be able to, for the first time for so many people to stand in a room and say that 
and know that everyone else around you has something similar in some kind of way, whether it's working in the same field, whether it's their own personal experience, whether it's knowing someone who has a similar experience. There is just so much power that comes with creating that safe environment. So we should all continuously be working to creating those environments so everyone can feel not just heard, but feel like they have the ability and the power to make better choices for themselves and for others so that we can continue to grow because we can't move forward if we keep making everyone hide who they are. And and it's so funny because I... I, I use this example a lot, right? So if you're walking down the street, right? And, you know, it, and, and refresh my memory, Fran, where, where is it you're from normally? Where, like, where are you uh, coming from? South Florida. That's what I was like. I was like, I want to say Miami. Like, Fort Lauderdale. So, oh, well, that's wildly different. Um, so different. <laughs> so different. Uh, so Fort Lauderdale, right? But if you're in Fort Lauderdale and you see a Miami Dolphins shirt, I'm going to guess that's not going to move the needle for you right? That's like, you are Miami Heat or Florida Panthers or whatever, right? But if you're in Fort Lauderdale and you see somebody wearing a Seattle Mariners jersey, you're gonna be like, what? What? Hold up. Because if you are also a closet Seattle Mariners fan, you want to talk to that person, right? I like a lot of obscure music. And one of my favorite bands is the band Trampled by Turtles. I, I just love them. And I was walking through New York City and I saw a guy wearing a trampled by turtles. Shirt. I saw like, oh, you like trampled by turtles. He's like, you like trampled by turtles. And like, we became instant best friends. But like, if I'm walking through New York City, I'm seeing someone wears a shirt that says, I love New York. I'm gonna be like, yeah, no, that makes sense. That tracks, that's yeah. right. There's no vulnerability there. But like, when you, when you see one of your people in the wild, it's like, hey. Because that is that shows to me that we desire not only connection, but authentic, vulnerable connection, right? The things that make us who we are are how we want to connect with others. And if one of the things that makes you who you are is mental illness, then we can put that front and center. Yeah, exactly. Instead of feeling like you have to hide yeah. a big piece of who you are. And it doesn't have to be your whole identity. No one's saying that's your whole identity, but it's also not something that you need to feel embarrassed for being part of your identity or for struggling with or for going through experiences that you possibly had no control over. Right? Like no one is going to get upset with you or hmm, actually, did I make no one's gonna upset with you if you like break your leg and you're in a cast, but I don't know. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. So, <laughs> right? Like, no one would be like, oh my goodness, don't go out in public for months because you're in a cast. You don't want anyone to see that you got injured, that you fell or that you were playing soccer or whatever. You don't want people to see that something was wrong with you at one point. Don't ever take a picture because you don't want anyone to know in the future that this happened to you. We don't tend to react that way for anything else. So we need to get to a point where we're not doing that with mental health either because your mental health is part of like it is part of who you are how you're feeling matters what you're going through matters every piece of how you're feeling matters and we can't just keep being like everything matters about how you feel except for this right. except we, for when you feel depressed right. when you're struggling with depression you're done <laughs> well and one of my one of the bedrocks of my personal therapy policy is from ross green right kids do as well as they can 
right? So I don't know, you probably can't see it. It's hard to see because the frame rate's not great. But I have a I have a scar here on my wrist from when a kid bit me once. And like I always say, like, you haven't lived unless you've been bitten by another human. Um and and the idea there is like everyone's like, you must be so angry at this kid. And I was like, why would I be angry at this kid? They're like, well, he bit you. I'm like, you think he chose that? You think he woke up this morning and said, boy, I can't wait to bite Dr. Matt's wrist today, right? He was having an epic level five meltdown and I got my arm too close to his chompers, right? The mistake here was mine, right? Now, I'm not saying that he made a great choice in biting me. I think we all know that's not the right choice to make in that moment, but I had a lot more control over what I was doing than what he was doing, right? So I always say mental illness is never an excuse, but it's context, right? No one would choose to feel the way they do. There are biological and social and environmental stressors that bring us to those places. And all we can do is meet someone where they are and say, hey, listen, I may not know how to get you out of here, but I'm going to be with you until you figure it out. Because no one would choose to have those things happen, right? You know, I mean, like, and you think about your brother with ADHD, right? It's not just the, I can't pay attention, I'm losing things, I have poor time management. It's the shame and hatred that comes with that. Like, I am a screw up because every adult in my life tells me every day that I'm a screw up. So I hate myself, right? The rates of depression and anxiety with ADHD kids are through the roof, right? Because of the way their environments respond to them. But as I tell teachers, and I'm going to talk to a school on Monday about this, like no one would choose to be that disorganized. Nobody would choose to not know where their homework is or realize that class started 20 minutes ago. Like those things are incredibly stressful. So like, could we just take a step back, get a little perspective and then say like, hey, how do I meet you where you are? Because that's where, that's how real change happens. Yes, absolutely. Meeting you where you are. We have to stop living in this world where we expect everybody to just meet us where we are all the time. All the time. How can we support you? How can I support you? How can I be here for you? What can I also do? How can we work together? How can we collaborate? How can we move forward? It can't be an I, I, I all the time. We need to make it a we. How can I be there for you? How can we get through this together? For my brother for so long, it was like, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to get your life together. You need to figure this out. And made him feel so alone in it. And he's like, do you think like I'm intentionally failing my classes? Like, do you think I really want to fail and get yelled at right now? He's like, is that what people think? Like, do they think I want to just sleep through my class, not show up, not be able to find my homework or not be able to remember that I had homework because I got so distracted with 10 other things and then I fail and then have to go and tell my parents, hey, I just failed and we lost our tuition for this class for the third time. Like, do we think he's actively choosing that? And it's so important to change the perspective from this kid doesn't care, he's lazy, he doesn't want to, to how can we support you? What do you need? For him, something that helped was writing things down, learning to write down what he has, and to tell other people to just hold himself a little more accountable. Because when it's not only existing in his brain, but it's now existing in, hey, Rock, I know you have a math test today, just want to check in, do you feel ready? 
that little reminder, like you have a math test today. Are you ready? Do you have any last minute questions? Finding things that worked for him. He's still figuring it out. I'm still figuring out how to be a good big sister. No, are, right? I mean, but it's fine. But isn't it amazing how it's proactive, not reactive, like we talked about before? Exactly. I'm reminding you about your math test rather than how did you not remember you had a math test? Yes. Like that doesn't help anybody. Like, you know, like my daughter, my daughter spilled a cup of chocolate milk last night. And my instant response was, why did you do that? And it's like, well, hold on, Dr. Matt, come on. Like, it's like, that clearly was not the choice you were trying to make. Let's see what, how, well, first off, let's fix it. And then let's talk about how to keep it from happening again. You know, and it's the sort of, it's that same thing. Like, obviously we're going to respond better when people see this with compassion, right? And, you know, I mean, it all, all of these topics layer into each other, right? You know, vulnerability and compassion and communication and systems and all these things, because mental health is not just a thing that happens in the therapy office from 11 to 12 on Monday, on, on Mondays, right? It's, 24 7 365 and so increasing awareness and building systems that accommodate and appreciate those realities are going to make every single person on planet earth all eight billion of us do better and why wouldn't we make that choice you know uh, is it going to help everybody oh i don't know i don't really like everybody <laughs> I really want to help about two people. Sorry. Yeah. Can't do this. Me and you. That's just the words. Everyone else, goodbye. No, yeah. no, <laughs> We're not going to send this to anybody. It's just going to be, you know. Our just, secret. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. I had an amazing time learning from you. It was a blast. And, you know, I am so happy our paths crossed and you know, I, I know you were going to do amazing things. And this podcast is just one small piece of that, but I, it was a real privilege to be a part of it. Thank you so much for listening to normalize the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast is an initiative of inspiring my generation, focusing on normalizing the conversation, bringing education and awareness to the forefront and amplifying global voices to spark change and hope. Inspiring My Generation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization on a mission towards suicide prevention through awareness, conversation, education, and support. Connect with us on Instagram at inspiringmygeneration and visit our website inspiringmygeneration.org to learn more about our work and how you can make a difference.